The second component, the second installment of the, the shield of faith is to look at what the shield itself is. We, in the prior discussion, we talked about the fiery darts. We didn't even really talk about the wicked, but just the fiery darts. Before we are done, I'd like to swing back and talk about the wicked because we'll understand with that the nature of the fiery darts. We saw how vulnerable people can be from their mother's wombs to these darts, these fiery darts against our identity and against our purpose. Uh, Attacks that are designed to unsettle us at the very core of our being and to overthrow every effort we make to be relevant in this present world. But let's move on into a discussion of the shield of faith. Now, the word shield in Greek, in the New Testament Greek, is the word thurios, T-H-U-R-E-O-S, thurios, thurios. It has three distinct meanings and each one provides a component of understanding that allows us to look closely at the effective workings of the shield of faith. I will observe before we go into this that it says, above all, above all, epi, above all, take the shield of faith. So in discussing the pieces of this armor, the shield of faith may be considered to be above all in terms of relevance. Everything functions with the understanding of the shield of faith. And it would also imply a covering of sorts above all. Hopefully we'll have time to unpack that going forward. But we must look at these things with a high degree of care. In part, we haven't done so before and we're woefully unprepared because we don't know typically what the scriptures are saying beyond the Sunday school experiences we've had with cardboard cutouts and dressing up little kids. This is a message of wisdom among the mature. This is the strong meat for those who uh, have moved on beyond simple things. Now, the shield of faith, the three things, thurios, one is a stone as laid in front of a sepulchre. In the days of Jesus and in the New Testament times and even before, it was not uncommon to have a tomb made out of rock and at the time of the burial of the corpse, of the owner of the tomb, the body would be put inside of the tomb 
and this stone would be rolled in front of it. An example of that is how Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea and the stone was rolled in place and sealed the entrance to the tomb. At the resurrection of Jesus, the tomb would be opened because angels had come and rolled away the stone. So one of the meanings of Thurios is a stone in front of a sepulchre. We'll come back to that. I'll develop each of these to show you how the different looks at the shield of faith, each one is meant to convey a very different but complementary understanding. You'll see that thematically all of them uh, answer the question, how, do we, how, do, how are we guarded against the fiery darts of the wicked? So one is a stone in front of a sepulchre. The second is analogous to a Roman shield uh, which was a, 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 an a oblong shield which was like a door, a door to a house. And certainly the idea of the shield is like a door, a door that may be put in place to guard against uh, incursions by the enemy. Um, and, and that would imply a certain positioning that is analogous to Christ who has said, I am the door by me if any man should enter in, uh, meaning entrance into the realm of divine protection is in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this would refer to an assembly to the body of Christ, an assembly to the body of Christ. If you're assembled into the person of Christ, there's certain immunities that are granted to you based upon a renewed or redefined identity. Again, I'll unpack that as I will also unpack the idea of the door being a sepulchre or the stone that is rolled in place of a sepulchre. And the third concept is a subset of the notion of a door, much like the door of the houses of Israel when they lived in Egypt and whoever was behind the door upon which the blood had been sprinkled, not on the door but on the sides of the door and on the lintel 
and whoever was behind the door was granted an immunity from the destroyer who swept through Egypt at the arrival of the the 10th plague, the final plague, to destroy the firstborn of every house. Now that door is analogous to a father, a father. Now it's interesting that concerning this door, the blood is not on the door, the blood is on the sides of the door and the lintel, but the door is hinged to this framework that has the blood on it. And everyone was assembled, as you will recall, according to families. And as they ate the whole lamb, the whole Paschal lamb, at the time of Peshach or Passover, and they did so by families. And the notion is that a righteous father gathers the household in spiritual houses and in that assembling a kind of immunity is granted to all those who are in the house. They were told not to depart from the house. In much the same way that the scriptures say, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. This is by no means speaking of Sunday meetings or for that matter any meetings. This is a permanent assembling as parts of the body assembled together because God places the solitary in families and the assembly of each part is not haphazard and it's not merely coincidental. It is designed to produce an effect of a supplying of every joint. So these three concepts. Uh, A subset of this concept is that in the Old Testament, righteous princes, righteous princes were considered to be as doors and shields to the people. In fact, uh, there's scripture to that effect. The people rejoice when the righteous rule because there is, by extension, a grace upon the house when a righteous father, be it a righteous man or righteous prince, when a righteous father is ruling. That is why, that is why the order of Melchizedek is comprised of two components, righteousness and king, king of righteousness. Melki, M-E-L-K-I, means king, and Zedek means righteousness. So when righteous rules, when the righteous rulers rule, there is an immunity granted to those who are under that rule. It is common to hear the foolish speak 
of their relationship to God. Here in America, the people are addicted to the notion of individual liberties and they insist on their personal liberty above all else. Some would even go so far as to foolishly talk about their individual liberty as, quote, a God-given right. No concept of corporate immunity by assembly, whether to a house or to a tribe or to a nation. No concept beyond their personal anything. It is a degree of folly that is only compounded by the arrogance with which it is asserted, as if it's the final stop, the final truth. And they would talk in terms of, quote, me and Jesus. And as long as they feel like uh, they have a relationship to God as far as they're concerned, that's the end of the matter. No concept of anything greater than that. If we don't understand the layers of, that are implied in the shield of faith, we are going to be picked off by the enemy. We are easy targets. Now, you could say, uh, that's just not what I choose to believe. Well, that's fine. Believe a lie if you wish your right to do so. But listen, when you believe a lie, you will pay the price. And your blood isn't on my head. If you indulge in this narcissistic folly, whatever happens to you, you have brought upon yourself. And do not for a moment think that somehow the love of God is going to carve out a special niche for you in your belligerence. You will pay the price. I take no joy in that, but the soberness of my warning is hopefully you would quit this silly, childish perspective that individual liberty is the highest order of divine gifting. It is not. The corporate man was always what God intended. A man in the image and likeness of Christ is a spiritual man. And the, the individual is only a member. He's not the whole man. He's only a member. Like the body has members, so the spiritual man, Christ, the spiritual man is Christ. It's why it's called the body of Christ. It's not your body and you're not the whole body. The glory of God is upon the corporate man. Yes, you will have an individual benefit to that, but it is not sufficient for fulfilling your destiny, nor is it sufficient in this war against the enemy. You'll be lucky to survive. Perhaps that's the reason 
that you keep going around the mountain. Perhaps that's the reason you can't gain any traction. It's too important to you to maintain your individual liberty. And I speak this primarily to Americans because they're addicted to the, with the, and they're passionate about individual liberty and see nothing greater than that. In the kingdom of God, this is of little worth. What may be of the primary worth in the American kingdom has virtually no value in the kingdom of God. Very different kingdoms, very different rules. I am not an ambassador in any capacity of the United States or its philosophies. I live in the United States, I'm a citizen of the United States, I derive the benefits from it and to that extent I'm grateful. But I'm not more grateful for that citizenship than I am my citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And all those who have a mind toward God should have the same point of view. Now let's go back and begin to unpack all three elements, all three usages of the shield of faith. Again to remind you, the first is a stone in front of a sepulchre. A second would be uh, Christ the door because the shield represents a door, a door into the presence of the Father and an assembling into the Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. And the third is placement within the corporate man as defined by a spiritual family overseen by a righteous father. When righteous princes rule, the people are at peace. And the analogy is to the fathers who were connected, uh, like doors were connected to the lintel and to the sides, to the frame of the door upon which the blood was. So there's a practical laying a hold of the person of Christ within spiritual households and that practical laying a hold of the person of Christ takes the form of a spiritual father who by definition, if you're a father in the house of God, John says, I write to you fathers for you know him who is from the beginning. All right, now let's move through and talk about each of these three elements each of these three applications of the shield of faith. And while we are doing that, I will point out to you the efficacy, the way that it is effective to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked. Now it is described as the shield of faith. So thorios is the word shield, but is called, is described as a shield of faith. So let's start there. What is the shield of faith when the application is like that of a stone being rolled into place in a sepulchre? 
Obviously, the implication is one of death, that you've died. Now, faith is intrinsically bound up with death, with death. Faith is described in Hebrews chapter 11 as the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now the word faith, as it first appears, is the word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis. The logic of faith, yes, I know I just said the logic of faith. It seems a contradiction, of course, because we think faith as somehow religious and logic as somehow being science. But Logi, L-O-G-Y, derived from the word logos, L-O-G-O-S, simply means the study or the understanding of. So bios logos or bios logos, we get the English word biology from that and it's the study of the bios which is a form of life. It's the lowest form of life. It's the environment, the environmental and the internal working of natural life. So the study of biology is the study of the creature, the internal uh, construct of the creature and the external environment in which the creature lives. That's the study of bios logos. Bios means life, logos is the study derived from the term for word, word or even reason. There's a term that is derived from pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, and it's called epistemology, E-P-I-S-T-E-M-O-L-O-G-Y, epistemology. And epi, as the first component of that, means above, so the overarch, the overarch. So an epistemology is a view of the overarch of faith, what is covered by faith, what is underneath the study of faith. because. In that sense of an overarch, faith is a foundation for a point of view. It informs our mind and our mindsets regarding how we make decisions. What are our assumptions as to what is true? So faith is tied up with truth. A related word to pistis 
and epistemology is ELPIS, E-L-P-I-S, ELPIS. And that's the word for hope, for hope. So faith is the substance of things we hope for and it empties out into an evidentiary format, the evidence of things not seen. Now, he gives an example, the writer of Hebrews gives an example of how faith is to be understood as hope based upon invisible evidence. And he says, by faith we believe that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. So in that he's saying, our evidence is this, we have observed the created world around us and we therefore have certain epistemological orientations based upon observing a result. But we were not there when the earth was created. But viewing the results, we may properly infer a pre-existing process or a preceding process. And that allows us to have faith, to have hope that this invisible process is constantly at work delivering results that allow us to have faith. Now I have not defined faith is what faith is yet and I'm going to wait until the next uh, segment to define the substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. We know that the term pistis is what uh, is referenced with the word faith, but the word substance is a very different word. It's the word hupostasis, H-U-P-O, which means under, and stasis, S-T-A-S-I-S. It's a position, a posture, a state of being. So, faith produces a standing under because we assume our epistemology, our assumptions, which are the basis of our understanding, will allow us to stand under whatever we are to understand that we are standing under in a particular fashion. This is what I want to define as we come back. Faith therefore is an assumption of an epistemology, truths that may be assumed upon which we stand in submission. I'll continue with that as we resume these discussions. I'm Sam Solon, we'll do that shortly. Bye-bye.